Well, big questions need big answers. Excuse me. Big questions need big answers. We started here last week and uh, talked about this idea that, you know, every, every viewpoint has a foundation. Every, uh, every worldview um, has some background information that directs our thinking, whether we realize it or not, whether, whether we like it or not. Um, nobody, nobody forms their worldview, nobody forms their thought process without some kind of presuppositions al- already in place. You know, the, the atheist that wants to teach us that this world is a product of chance, um, and they try to tell us that, they're, oh, we're looking at the science, and this is what the science tells us. But even in what they're claiming the science tells us, there are underlying presuppositions, things that they are assuming to be true, that they don't know whether they're really true or not. The same is true of our thinking as Christians, our worldview. And the Bible tells us that we are to be ready to give an answer to every man of the reason that, uh, for the hope that is in us and to do it with meekness and fear. I was thinking this past week of the story I heard of the little child that was asking Daddy lots of questions. You know, those kinds of questions that children come up with. Um, you know, Daddy, why is the sky blue? I, I don't know. Why is the sky blue? I don't know. Daddy, where does the wind come from? I, I don't know. Where does the wind come from? How does electricity work? I remember one of my kids, one of my children asked me something about, about the lamb, uh, Jesus being the lamb. And I, it was a question that was, I thought, insightful and at the same time was something that I'd never thought of. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. This child asking daddy all these questions, and daddy does not have answers. And I've heard some daddies make up answers. Um, Daddy kept saying, I don't know. And then after a little while, the child said, daddy, are you tired of me asking all these questions? And daddy says, no, how else are you going to learn anything? Last week, we began talking about this idea of the Bible as the foundation for our belief system. And just by way of review, very quickly, uh, many times people in the church have had a simple faith. That's totally okay. A simple faith is great. However, we need to think through and, and be logical and reasonable about our faith, about the things that we believe. Sometimes our thinking has even been somewhat circular. It could go like this. Uh, people might say something like this. I believe the Bible is true because it's from God. And I trust God because of what I read in the Bible. 
Now, we brought this up last week, and, and hopefully most of you see the problem with this kind of an argument. It is exactly as the picture shows it. It is a, it is a circular argument that, that does not support itself, and we need something more than just a circular line of reasoning. Now, for those of you, if you say, Pastor, that is good enough for me, and you are assured and confident in your faith, that's okay, that's fine. But the more we can learn and, and build up the support for our faith, I believe the better off we will be in a world that is constantly attacking us for our faith and looking for reasons to undermine the legitimacy of our faith. So last week we talked about why really should we believe that the Bible is the Word of God and the simple answer to this question is this, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything hangs on this, the belief that this is something that actually happened in history and changed all of history. It is the reason that we even have the Bible in the first place. You see, friends, if Jesus Christ had not lived and died and rose again, we wouldn't have the church or the Christian religion or the Bible as we know it today. We wouldn't have any of those things. And so last week we discussed a few of the high points of the arguments that demonstrate that it is very reasonable to believe that Jesus Christ was a real person who lived and died and rose again from the dead. Because this is true, we can believe that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. It is the resurrection of Christ that demonstrates that Jesus really is the sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And also because of this, we can believe God's Word. I want to keep us on track and keep you reminded that everything we believe, the reason we are Christians, the reason we believe this is because of the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, pastor, you know, how can you, you can't really prove that. Uh, skeptics often like to point out um, They'll, they'll try to say things like, well, I, I'm not going to believe unless it can be proven to me scientifically. Scientifically. But they're using the wrong kind of reasoning, the wrong kind of a rational process. You see, the scientific method, something being proven scientifically, requires that it is something that is repeatable and that you can repeat a process and observe the results and you over and over again you know a scientist will will form a hypothesis and they'll test their hypothesis and and do experiments and all of that and as they see the results then they will prove or disprove their hypothesis did you know you cannot prove scientifically that George Washington or Abraham Lincoln really existed and were men who were presidents of the United States can't prove it scientifically, but you can prove it with what is called the legal historical method. It is by studying history, by studying the facts of history, by what has been recorded, we can see. Now, I suppose somebody could deny 
that they were real men who really existed. There, there are people today who deny that men have walked on the moon. But we believe we, as, a, as a matter of history that it is something that has taken place, right? I mean, most of us do. I, I, you know, if there's somebody here that you say, oh, I'm, I don't believe, well, uh, God bless you, that's okay. But what we're talking about is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you this morning, there is just as much reason and evidence to believe that Jesus died and rose again from the grave. Just as much reason to believe that as there is anything else that you read in your history books. And so because of that, we can believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. But we can also believe... That the Bible is true, because you see, as we spoke of last week, the Bible is a result of a group of men that based their lives on this idea that Jesus rose from the grave. Because Jesus rose from the grave, they wrote about him. They, they wrote uh, the, the stories of his life, and they wrote other things uh, about Jesus, about his teachings, and on and on, and a movement developed until some said that they turned the world upside down. And it all happened because of a small group of people that believed Jesus died and rose from the grave. But you see, beyond this, we can also believe what the Bible says about itself. Now, I want to encourage you to stick with me. If we were to start there... I would tell you that reasonably and logically, that would be the wrong place to start. To say we can believe what the Bible says about itself. That kind of goes back to the idea of circular reasoning. You know, I believe the Bible is true because it's from God, and I trust God because of what the Bible says about him. And that just, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. But when you step outside of that and look at the fact that historically we have reason to believe that Jesus died and rose again, we can believe this book, we can believe the Bible, then we can believe also what the Bible says about itself. Yeah, thank you. So I want to look this morning at, thank you very much, some truths. We we aren't going to cover all the ground that I want to cover. But some passages of Scripture and some teachings of Scripture uh, that we can believe. Now, this, to, to be fair, again, I want to tell you that this is what the Bible teaches us about itself. But it is reasonable to accept as truth what the Bible teaches about itself because we also believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now this passage, 2 Timothy 3, this is the primary reference on what the Bible teaches about itself. If you want to say, what, what should I believe about the Bible? That's assuming you are, are coming from the foundation level that you're believing also that Jesus died and rose from the grave. This is the primary scripture reference. In this passage, it tells us that the scripture teaches us how to be saved. Verse number 15, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. God's word is the place where we go if we want to know how to be saved, how to be forgiven from our sins and put into a right relationship with God. There's, there's no other source, there's no other, uh, no other sacred book that you can look to. Uh, the Quran won't help you get saved. The, the, the Book of Mormon won't help you get saved. N- nothing, no other sacred writings. Only God's Word will give us the true way, the path of salvation. In this passage, we also learn where the Bible is from where the Bible is from. Notice verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, I understand that, and this we might go in this direction um, in, in a couple weeks, but the Bible is, uh, uh, the, the compilation of the Bible involves a number of, of human instruments, human writers, but they were men who were used by God, inspired, as his word tells us, by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so the origination of God's word is that it is of divine origin. It comes to us from God through human instruments. And not only has it come to us through human instruments, but it has also been, I believe, preserved by God, preserved by God. I had a train of thought and it got derailed there for just a moment. I'm sure none of you have ever had that happen. If we can trust, and and again, this this is where I was going, where I was getting back to. I want you to keep in mind that All of this, everything we are saying is built on the foundation level that we believe Jesus died and rose again. And that is something we believe, yes, because it's recorded in the Bible, but also because of the way that it's recorded, and it is also supported from outside of the Bible. So if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then we can believe this is his book and we can believe what it says about itself. It tells us how to be saved. It tells us that it is of a divine origin. It is from God. It also tells us in this passage what the Bible is good for. What the Bible is good for. Now, excuse my outline and my PowerPoint. I, this was from a few years ago and I was using a King James Version. Uh, but the truth and the words are the same. Well, the words are different, but the meaning is the same. 
English Standard Version says that it is profitable for teaching or doctrine, for reproof, same word, for correction, again the same word, and for training in righteousness or instruction in righteousness. So what is the Bible good for other than telling us how to be saved? That's pretty good to know how to be saved. Uh, But it is also good for teaching, for doctrine. In other words, this is the path on which we are to walk, the way we are to live our lives. If you want to know what's right, the way you ought to live your lives, then you need to familiarize yourself with this book, the Word of God. It also is good for reproof. In other words, it tells you when you are off the path, when you are out of line, when you are not following God's will and God's way. I think there are a lot of people in the world today and a lot of people in the church that, that maybe have this ambiguous, uneasy feeling that something is not right with their life and, and something is wrong, but they're not quite sure what the problem is and they're not quite sure where they got off track. Well, friends, if we will familiarize ourselves with this book, and even now, if you're uncertain as to where you are, you feel lost but don't understand why, if you will begin a study of this book and ask God to guide you and direct you, he will show you where you have gotten off the path. It is good for teaching us the path on which we are to walk. It tells us when we are off the path. It's also good for correction. It tells you how to get back on the path. 1 John chapter 2, we talked about a few weeks ago. These things I write unto you that you sin not. However, if a man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, which is Jesus Christ the righteous. Praise his name. Tells us how to get back on the path. Instruction in righteousness. It'll tell us how to stay on the path. You know, friends, that it is not necessary for we as Christians to be continually living an up and down life, always vacillating between our way and God's way or between what we want and what the world is trying to draw us to, but we can be people who are committed to living life God's way and God's word will teach us how to stay on the path. This passage also tells us what its purpose is, the purpose of God's word. Verse 17, that the man of God, we could also say the woman of God, may be complete, that is perfect, the King James Version says, thoroughly furnished or equipped for every good work. The Bible tells us if you want to be a Christian, if you want to uh, know the truth uh, about God and about the world and why the world is the way it is and uh, how we can, how uh, really, you know, everything about life, where we come from, why we're here, where we're going. If you want to know all of those things, God's word tells us all of that and it tells us how to live the way God wants us to live. The Bible says that God has given to us everything that we need for life and for godliness. There are a few other secondary passages that also teach us about God's word. This passage in 2 Timothy is the primary passage uh, uh, that tell us what the Bible says about itself. But there are a few others that I would point out to you. 2 Peter chapter 1. There are some important words here, beginning with verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that last part refers us back to the idea that Paul was speaking about in 2 Timothy, the idea of inspiration, that the Spirit uh, breathed out through these human instruments the Word of God. But it gives us a little bit more information as well. The King James Version there, the beginning of that verse, verse 19, uh, uses the, the phrase, a more sure word of prophecy. We have a more sure word of prophecy, or a more certain, or as we read here, a more fully confirmed word, the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And we could ask the question, well, more, more sure or more fully confirmed than what? That's a, a comparison word. And if you back up to verse 16, you see there what Peter is saying. Verse 16, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's saying, I'm, I'm writing to you, I'm telling you about things that I actually experienced. I saw for myself. I heard the voice of Jesus myself. I saw him visibly. I was an eyewitness. And for most of us, we think that is the kind of the ultimate standard. You know, when, when uh, in a court of law, they're trying a case, what you really want is an eyewitness, somebody who, who was actually there and saw what happened. And I think, well, that's great. You know, you have an eyewitness, and that's something you can really believe, you can really stake your faith in. But Peter goes on then in verse 19 to say, we have something even better than eyewitness testimony. That's what he's saying. We have a more sure word, a more fully confirmed word, something even better than eyewitness testimony. And that is this, the idea that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, prophecy there, it, it refers simply to written Scripture. Actually, that's what it says in verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. King James Version uses the word private interpretation. In other words, it is not someone's own personal opinion. This is sadly, I think, more and more debatable, has gotten to be more debatable in the times that we live in. Um, even in circles that many of us would be familiar with, there would be people who would tell you, well, many of the scripture writers, you know, not everything that they were writing was inspired, and some of it is their own ideas, and some of it is is based on the customs and the cultures of their time, and and. And the only thing that we can really count on is when the Bible is telling us how to be saved and when the Bible is telling us about matters that are crucial for faith and salvation. <clears throat> and I, I don't want to go too deeply into this, but I just want to tell you I have a problem with that. Because who is to say, friends, where the lines are? 
Who is to say, well, this is an issue that's crucial and this is an issue that's not? This is an issue that is, that is, that is culturally defined and this is an issue that's not. Who makes those rules? I would rather go to God's word and take it for what it says and believe. And I know it is it, the men that were writing it were informed by their belief system and by, their, by the culture of their times. And yes, when we study it and when we do hermeneutics, that's a fancy word you learn in Bible college or seminary, by the way, that simply means interpretation, how you interpret the Bible. When we do exegesis, that's another fancy word that means you are, you are drawing out what it's saying to you today. Which, by the way, we want to do exegesis, not eisegesis. Eisegesis is when you read into it what you think it means or what you want it to mean. And that is not the way to do it. And that's what we have a lot of times happening today. That's why... Lord, help me. Keep me from this rabbit trail. Okay, let's move on. That's why people are confused. That's why people are mixed up today and not sure what the Bible says about this or what the Bible teaches about this. And even when they are sure about what the Bible says, they're not sure it really meant. Well, I'm not sure it really meant that. You know, maybe it meant something else. The men who were writing spake not from their own interpretation. It's not their own personal opinion. But they were speaking as they were moved along, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a book of divine origin. And again, don't forget the foundation. The foundation is that we believe that Jesus died and rose again from the grave. Moving on then, this leads us to the idea of the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. What authority does the Scripture have? Let me rephrase that. What authority should the Scripture have? It only has the authority that an individual gives to it. In, in reality, uh, rather, in, in practical living. We determine on an individual basis whether or not we are going to live and base our lives on the authority of this book. We decide whether or not we're going to say, I'm going to take it, I'm going to take it as, it, as it's written as a whole and, and believe it and base my life on it, or I'm going to pick and choose and say, well, I like this part, and, you know, be kind of like Thomas Jefferson did who cut his Bible up, you know, that he, he, he was a deist and he, he denied the supernatural, he denied miracles, and so anything that reflected that, he cut out of his Bible and kept the parts that he thought were valid. Um. <clears throat> so what is the authority of Scripture? Well, let's look at a few passages of, script, uh, uh, of Scripture and see what the Bible says. Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18 Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, 
inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people instead inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And notice this next phrase has an exclamation point. Isaiah is saying this, this is, he's crying this out to the law and to the testimony or to the teachings and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn or they have no light in them. So what does that mean? That means that any one Bible teaching must be in harmony with everything that the Bible teaches. This is something that many people have been guilty of throughout the years, is, and, and we hear this a lot, and Bible teachers and preachers say things about, uh, about taking something out of context. Say, taking, you know, here's a good example of what can happen when you take something out of context. It's the, anybody ever try to find direction from the Lord by, by letting your Bible fall open and, and putting your finger down and saying, you know, okay, here's what God wants me to do. I, you, you've probably all heard this story. It's an old story. There's a man who was not sure about what to do with his life and his future, and he was searching for direction from the Lord, and, and he did that. He opened his Bible and put his finger down, and he looked down and read, Judas went out and hanged himself. That, that wasn't very encouraging, so he thought he would try again. And he, again, he tried again and opened his Bible, let his Bible, and randomly put his finger down, and he looked down and saw and read, Go and do thou likewise. And then he was really disturbed, and so he thought he would try one more time, and this time he looked and he read, Whatsoever thou doest, do quickly. Well, you, un, you know, you understand, that's a, that's a great example of taking words out of context. It's also a bad way to get direction from the Lord. Any one teaching of the Bible needs to be in harmony with all of what the Bible teaches. People have taken things, taken ideas like God is, God is love. God is love, so therefore, that means God must want me to be happy. And if God, wants, God loves me and God wants me to, happy, to be happy, then that means that it must be okay for me to leave my present spouse that I've fallen out of love with and go marry somebody else that I think I'm really in love with now. And, and that, again, is a great example of what happens when we take things out of context or when we forget that the Bible truth about any subject is the whole Bible truth about that subject. Hopefully that's pretty clear. Let's, let's move on. John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verse 46 through 49. Again, we're talking about the authority of Scripture John chapter 12, Jesus cried out and said, this is verse 44, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words 
and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. How many of you have that in red letters in your Bible? You have that in red letters? Yeah. Well, I, have, I have a red letter version, and, and it's kind of neat to have a red letter edition. The, the red letters, you know, those are the words that Jesus spoke. However, these words that Jesus spoke that we just read indicate to us that the red letters have no greater authority than the whole rest of the book. It's all, it's God's word. It's all God's word, both the black letters and the red letters. The red letters are not any more authoritative than the rest of Scripture. All Scripture is from God, and God's word on the last day will be what judges us. Friends, many people do not understand the the privileged position that we live in. Right now, we live in a position to stand on one side of God's Word, to read it and study it and be informed by it, to be taught by it, to learn the way of salvation, how to really know God, how to live for God. But friends, the day will come when we will be on the other side of God's Word to be judged by it. And our lives will be measured, and they won't be measured by your wife's standard or your husband's standard. Your life will not be measured by your own standard for yourself, but your life will be measured by the standards in this book. And friends, the only hope that any of us have on that day is whether or not we have been cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and have then determined to follow His will and His way. Moving on, John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Verse 35. Just the last part, very, very brief. Again, the words of Jesus that says, Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. And, and that simply means that it cannot be changed or done away with. And, and I don't know, I can imagine there might be someone here who, who can think of things recorded in the Scriptures that would say, well, what about this, preacher, and what about that, and, and what about this that's recorded in Scripture, and what about... One of the things that we need to remember about the Bible is that it often records what it does not approve of. So by that I mean the, um, the history. The, the Bible is a book of history. It is a historical book. And it records things that happen as a matter of history, but that itself, its teaching, does not approve of. So we need to factor that in when we think about these, these words, especially words like this, that say Scripture cannot be broken. 
I just read a couple of days ago, uh, well, I think yesterday in my daily Bible reading, how when King David was an old man, he was sickly and could not get warm. And so the, his leaders sought for him a, a, a beautiful young woman in the land to come and to lie with him to help warm him in his old age. My wife wouldn't go for that. And, and the Bible, I think, that's one, of those, that's one of those examples where the Bible records things that happened as a matter of history, but which the teachings of the Bible itself does not approve. Okay, moving on. Matthew chapter 5. This is an important one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Again, the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish or to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends here, Jesus is saying that he has not come to do away. I've, I've heard this over and over, not very long ago. I've, got, I've, had, a, I've had a friend and people who say, well, you know, the only thing that's valid today from the Old Testament is whatever parts were repeated in the New Testament. Baloney. All of God's word is valid for us today in, in some way, in some fashion. You say, well, pastor, what about the animal sacrifices? We don't do that anymore. That is one of those ways in which Christ came to fulfill or to complete the law. Fulfill means that he demonstrates its teaching to us and also shows its continuing relevance. And based on the further words, uh, the words of verse 19, where he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He shows there that it is a continuing standard for measuring righteousness. A continuing standard for measuring righteousness. Pastor, don't you know we live in an age of grace? Thank God we do. We live in an age of grace. But you see, friends, this is also the age in which God spoke to us by the prophets and said that the day would come when he would imprint his law upon our hearts so that we would do according to his will because we want to. We want to be pleasing in his sight. One more, and I'm almost done. Psalm 138. Psalm 138, verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. Now listen to this part. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. What does that mean? That means, friends, that God stakes his reputation on his word. 
his name. God, we, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is to have a concern for God's reputation, that his name might be hallowed among the heathen, among the Gentiles, among the ungodly. And this passage from Psalm 138.2 tells us that God stakes his very reputation on his holy word. And I understand there are some, there are some risks, and I'm out of time, so I'm, I'm going to close up here in just a few minutes. I don't want to be a Bible idolater. That is a legitimate risk and danger. We do not worship the Bible. Yet we do take it as our foundation for for our worship. It instructs us. It tells us how to be saved. How to be saved. It tells us how to live. And again, this, all of this depends on the foundation level where we began. We began with this idea that we believe as a matter of historical fact that Jesus died and rose again from the grave. If that is true, and we believe it is, then we can base our lives on this book. <clears throat> Based on the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection... We can believe that he is who he said he was, the sinless son, the Lamb of God. We can believe that the Bible is the divinely revealed and inspired word of God. We can trust what it says and what it says about itself. Therefore, therefore, we ought to take this book as our roadmap, our guidebook for life, our foundation for life, everything about it, and we ought to base our lives upon it and walk in the light of it. Now, not everyone will. And you may look around and you, you, you may question, why don't people take God? If it's true, you know, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, why don't more people see it that way? You know, why don't more people come to the understanding? I could tell you about a few who did. I can tell you about a number of men who set out to disprove the Bible. And you know what happened to most of them? They got converted to Christianity and became followers of Jesus and of the Bible. Because they found in their study of it that it was so well supported. But many times people will refuse. People do not. Some people refuse to, uh, to align their lives with God's word and God's teaching because they don't want it to be true. If it's true, then that means they, there's an authority over their lives other than themselves. If it's true, then that means there's a way they ought to be living their lives and they're not living it that way. Another thing is that there is... And, and, and some people may claim this is a cop-out, and that's okay. You won't, you won't understand unless you experience it. But the Bible itself teaches us that, that natural man cannot receive the things of the, uh, of the Spirit. They cannot receive spiritual truth because they, are, they must be spiritually discerned. Unless we have our hearts and our minds enlightened by the Spirit of God, then you might say, well, how does anybody ever get saved? It is through grace 
that God brings upon a sinner the understanding of their guilt and their responsibility before God. And that grace in itself is an enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. It's what we call conviction. And it goes along with what we in the, in the Wesleyan, uh, churches of the Wesleyan Arminian persuasion, we would call prevenient grace. It is grace that goes before salvation, that brings sinners to God. Many people will not take this as their guidebook because they're not willing to align their lives with it. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if you will to do my will, then you will know of the doctrine, whether it's really true or not. And one of the things that is crucial about receiving guidance from the Lord, about, about receiving spiritual truth, is having a willingness to actually obey. If we're unwilling to obey, if we're unwilling to, to do God's will, don't go to God's Word expecting to find guidance. It will not talk to you. It will not speak to you. But if you can go to God's will and say, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. Would you speak to me? God will speak to you. He will enlighten you. You see, friends, it is for the Christian, it is walking in the light. And it is a beautiful thing to walk in the light. We sing about it, we had, or we used to, walking in the beautiful light of God. It's wonderful, beautiful. And the writer of the Proverbs wrote about it, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. He said, the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Friends, conforming our lives to this book and living by it is not a, a hampering, binding, uh, hindering way to live, but it is liberating and freeing, and it is something that's get, that gets better and better and brighter and brighter as we go. The path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more. All right, this is it. Now I'm really closing. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding. Its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, too, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Praise God. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. God's word, friends, let it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Let's stand, please.